Welcome to the latest Red Star Bulletin, bringing you all the latest news from the front lines of the NATO-Russia war taking place in Ukraine, and tonight looking at a few other related and interrelated issues as well. Moving first to look at the latest news from the war in Ukraine itself. The talk at the moment from uh, Ukrainian and Russian sources indicates that there is some kind of Ukrainian military build-up going on in the Zaporozhye region, which of course has been long talked about as a potential source of counter-offensive by the Ukrainian armed forces. Now, this is unconfirmed as of yet, and it has been talked about relentlessly since uh, at least the beginning of November, that this was going to be the place that the Ukrainians tried to make a breakthrough, and with the aim of heading towards Melitopol, with the aim ultimately of striking southwest towards Crimea. Now, of course, the Crimea strike has long been a pipe dream of various over-medicated Ukrainian nationalists, of course, but there is pressure on Zelensky to deliver something in terms of an offensive to prove that uh, essentially his regime still has some vitality to it and that the Ukrainians can still inflict some kind of defeat on the Russian armed forces in the field. So it would not be a surprise if they were using the troops that they transferred, or at least some of them that weren't transferred up to Artemovsk, down to the Zaporozhye region to try and do something down there. At the very least, they might be trying to have another more concerted attempt to take the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant or launch this much-talked-about offensive. However, it should be emphasized that according to reports, even in the Western media now, that the Russians are very well dug in in the Zaporozhye region and show no inclination of doing a strategic withdrawal as they did from Kherson. So any attempt by the Ukrainians to advance in Zaporozhye region is likely to meet very heavy resistance and is likely to result in very heavy casualties, which at this stage the Ukrainians can ill afford to take. So you have to, again, always ask the question of if they are going to do this, well, why are they going to do it? Given that everybody knows now that the Russians are very well dug in, they have superiority in terms of the amount of artillery that can be brought to bear upon an advancing army. Every day in the briefing from the Russian Ministry of Defense and from uh, independent military analysts. There's stories about how the Ukrainian offenses are mostly company size, which means between 100 to 250 men. And these are mostly then blown up by the Russians with uh, targeted artillery strikes and with other heavy weaponry. So given that Ukraine is stretched thin, given that they have only around, what, 150,000 or so troops left in the field that are capable of fighting, that aren't uh, foreign soldiers, that aren't Poles, Americans, Brits, Romanians and others from the NATO bloc, then you have to wonder what is this for? And the answer is the same as it always is. If this does go ahead, it is going ahead for the reasons of convincing the foreign donors, most specifically the European countries, but also the doubters inside the US Congress, to continue coughing up the weapons and the money. Even if this doesn't do anything good whatsoever, there is a very lucrative market in these things going on amongst the denizens of the uh, Kiev cocaine clown posse, and they are raking in the cash from this. And also always remember that the political and indeed physical survival of Zelensky and the rest of the cocaine clown posse is dependent upon them carrying the favour of the Western donor nations, the Western partners, as they are sometimes called, but in reality, the imperialist powers who completely dominate everything that goes on inside the government of Ukraine. And they are the ones who need to be impressed. So when looking at a decision like the potential attack in Zaporozhye against very heavily fortified very um, heavily reinforced Russian forces that is only likely to be resulting in mass casualties. The only people who are supposed to be impressed by it are foolish politicians who get shown a headline and some clips of some heroic stuff by the Ukrainians blowing up an old T-64 tank or something, or just faking the footage and claiming it's a counteroffensive as they've been caught doing before, and say, here you go, Congressman, look at that. You had doubts about the Ukrainians? Well, they've just taken point X and just blown up all this Russian equipment. Please vote for the next aid package. Please speak for the next aid package. 
please take a meeting with Boris Johnson, who's telling you to give the Patriot missile system to the Ukrainians, that kind of thing. It's all very, very cynical, and it will only lead to more mass slaughter of Ukrainian fighting men, which, of course, neither the cocaine clown posse in Kiev nor their backers in Washington and London give much of a shit about. It's all about, for the Kiev clowns, proving that Ukraine can still serve a purpose in the ultimate game, which is the ever-diminishing, very small and ever-diminishing chances of securing some kind of regime change in Moscow, which the madmen in London and Washington still think is some sort of viable objective for them, even though it's never been further away. So that's part of what is going on at the moment. The other big stories floating around at the moment is, of course, the continued siege by the Russian armed forces and the Wagner group of the city of Artemovsk or Bakhmut, if you're of the Ukrainian persuasion. And this has been going on for obviously for several months now. It has cost Ukraine thousands upon thousands of casualties. And even the Financial Times is admitting now it is turning into a bloodbath. The curious thing about the latest Financial Times report, though, was the way that the FT chose to flip the story on its head, accusing the Russians of sending in human wave attacks against the uh, Ukrainian armed forces who are dug in and mowing down these hordes of Russians. And of course, as I've said before, this is just not something that the Russians are doing. It's based on a completely false understanding of the practices of the old Soviet army in World War II. And nobody in this war, nor in any war after the Iran-Iraq war of the uh, mid-80s, has anyone used human wave attacks? It's a fantasy, and it's, uh, of course, just some Ukrainian propaganda that the FT is dutifully repeating, in between, of course, admitting that the Ukrainians are taking thousands upon thousands of casualties and the place is an absolute hellhole. The reality is, of course, that, as even the Daily Telegraph admitted recently, uh, Surovikin, and even before he was appointed, the Russian commanders in general have been very cautious about the uh, amount of casualties that they are prepared to endure given that ultimately this springs from what Putin and the leadership in Moscow perceive as a potential political weakness for them. All of these men in the Russian government's inner circle were around in the 1990s when Yeltsin's first war against Chechnya went catastrophically badly, and there were many, many thousands of Russian conscript soldiers' deaths leading to protests by the mothers of the soldiers and um, it did severe damage to the Kremlin's political credibility and of course Yeltsin's credibility got shot to shit as well and for that and many other good reasons for why it deserved to be shot to shit but all of them are acutely aware of the dangers that a mass casualty event could pose to uh, them politically speaking so they have been very very cautious when it comes to uh, the deployment of forces and don't want to and don't feel the need to uh, engage in last stands and fight to the last man kind of orders that the uh, Nazis were giving to their men towards the end of World War II. So when faced with a situation where they would be surrounded, they have usually withdrawn in good order, not before, though, um, inflicting very heavy casualties upon the Ukrainians. And so this is the practice that's been adopted inside the siege of Artemovsk, and they have slowly closed the net around it whilst leaving just enough space for the Ukrainians to send more men in. And of course, for the Ukrainians to do all these uh, fight to the last man stands and uh, keep on attacking even though there's no chance of any advance suits the Russian purposes just fine because the enemy is hurling himself onto your bayonets. Why would you interrupt him? Because the aim of the Russians is to completely annihilate the Ukrainian armed forces and then after that, collapse the Ukrainian state as it is currently constituted. As to what it'll come afterwards, well, I, I speculated some more on that in the previous episode, so go back and listen to that. I won't go over it again now. But it is clear from the coverage in the press in Britain that uh, Artemovsk is going to fall to the Russians very soon, and of course that is a key strategic town on uh, high ground and opens up the way to Kramatorsk and Slavyansk in the other remaining areas of the Donetsk People's Republic, as the Russians call it. So this is going to be a big victory, and it's clear that the uh, NATO countries are braced for it and are trying to prepare the ground for it by 
downplaying its significance, claiming that it's cost the Russians thousands of casualties and claiming that the whole thing's a giant, unimportant event, essentially. And it doesn't really matter, of course. Meanwhile, eventually, uh, Ukrainians aren't going to be able to keep lying about the number of casualties that their forces are taking, especially when, and more to the point, if their forces do finally collapse or their state collapses. And the current running around like headless chickens that going going on inside NATO is more about trying to work out what the hell they're going to do when the Ukrainian state eventually does implode. Zelensky, of course, remains dimly aware of his fate. And the amount of Colombian finest that he's doing on a daily basis can't disguise that rather gnawing doubt that must exist in his mind. So he's trying to prove himself to be as useful as possible to his sponsors before eventually he hopes to be extracted and goes to live the rest of his life in exile in the United States doing tours with Trevor Noah in Las Vegas or Atlantic City or something. So the war continues to grind onwards and we await what kind of Russian offensive is eventually going to emerge when they feel like they have reached the point where all of their conditions for such an offensive are satisfied. And again, Surovikin seems in no hurry to proceed until all those conditions are met. In related news, there is the question of the visit by President Xi Jinping of the People's Republic of China to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And he's meeting with the very ill and obviously on his way out king, but more importantly, his heir apparent and the man who's actually running things in the kingdom, that is Mohammed bin Salman. And this uh, was part of a meeting uh, partly with the Saudis, but also with the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is the various other Gulf microstates that are tied to the Saudis. And Xi had a series of meetings with them where they declared they were going to cooperate more on energy issues. There's going to be an expanded energy market opened in, in China in terms of the trading, international trading of oil that goes on in Chinese markets. There's going to be more settlements done in the yuan, which of course continues to erode the power of the dollar. And there's going to be more cooperation on uh, military and security matters as well. So what can we discern from all of this? And the obvious thing to state is that the House of Saud, personified by Mohammed bin Salman, is spreading its bets or putting a bet on the rising challenger, so to speak. They have, or more to the point, MBS has looked at the United States. There was, if you recall, four years ago, uh, a big splash made in the U.S. press with articles from the likes of Thomas Friedman about how MBS was going to be the big reformer who was going to change Saudi Arabia for good. Turns out that he is a big reformer, but he's changing Saudi Arabia in ways that the likes of Thomas Friedman did neither anticipate nor desire, which is that he has looked at the situation in the United States and he has correctly assessed the interests of the House of Saud, which is that he, uh, MBS, assessed when he came into power, and remember when he came in, he locked up a lot of his uh, billionaire relatives from the rest of the uh, the house. He locked them up in a hotel in Riyadh uh, and tortured them until they coughed up their cash. And then, essentially, once he'd broken them all, they were all released. So he secured his power in a, in a brutal but very efficient manner, and then he proceeded to do an assessment of what the kingdom needed to do, which is diversify away from oil, if they possibly could, to other areas of economic activity, and also to secure more stable alliances for itself. He seems to have assessed that the political leadership in the United States, including under the presidency of Trump, was degenerating, that the power of the United States, both within the region and globally, was diminishing, that they were, of course, losing the war in Iraq, that they lost the war in Afghanistan. And so MBS, being a pragmatic type, it seems, has decided that if he's going to seek um, a diversification of the Saudi economy, well, then he needs investors. And who's got a lot of capital to export? It happens to be the government of the PRC. And so this is the decision that he has made to do a realignment. He hasn't openly broken with the United States, of course, but the die has already been cast on that. And for his part in this, President Xi came in and made a joint statement with MBS, or really a China-Saudi Arabia joint statement, but it was crafted by the two men and their 
entourages, stating their commitment to respecting each other's sovereignty, to joint development towards a peaceful resolution of the conflict in Ukraine, which didn't mention any criticism of the Russians, which would have caused the US no end of uh, chagrin. So, of course, the US embassy in China flips out and said a load of things about Chinese human rights violations, much of which were, as always, wildly overhyped, massively exaggerated or outright lies. So all the uh, US has got at the moment is flailing impotence. Now, it will be interesting to see what happens with regard to areas of US-Saudi cooperation that have run for a long time. The perhaps biggest area is the ongoing war in Yemen, which does not happen without uh, US active assistance to the Saudis. And the Saudis in that are acting as the US proxy force in many respects. And the war is, of course, run largely, at least from the air side of things, by US and British Air Force officers who operate out of a command center in Saudi Arabia. So this brutal, almost decade-long war that the Saudis have been waging, and by the way, losing, is one area where they have a long-standing and deep collaboration with the United States. So what is ultimately going to happen to that, you have to ask, given that the Saudis themselves are desperate for the um, Yemeni nationalist movement uh, that's called by its official name Ansarullah or by its unofficial name, the Houthi movement, even though, of course, it's expanded well beyond the original Houthi movement now to be a a genuine nationalist organization comprising of all the different factions within Yemen other than those who are just the compradors that are tied to the Saudis. So what happens over the collaboration with the US over that will be interesting to see if the Saudis try to reach some kind of compromise to get themselves out of a war that they cannot win. For the Chinese, of course, buying more oil, both from the Russians and the Saudis, is going to be a requirement as they continue to reopen the sectors of their economy, which have been severely restricted under the zero COVID policy over the past couple of years. And doing this in a way that uh, further increases the usage of the yuan in settlements, of course, also damages the dollar, which gives the Chinese another Uh, advantage over the Americans in terms of weakening the hold of the dollar as the international reserve currency. And without that, then the American ability to finance this gigantic amount of debt becomes ever more damaged. And so what should we make of this in terms of the realignments going on here? Well, I would say that the leadership of the House of Saud is in the hands of a man who is a capable reactionary, but a reactionary nonetheless. Of course he is. He remains exactly the same creature as his grandfather, the first king of Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud. And these characters haven't changed. The interests that they represent haven't changed. It's just that the world changes and the fact that these guys were the vassals of the US and the British for 80 years or so, that eventually diminishes. And history is full of states that started off as vassals and then eventually became something more than that, or switched allegiances when a historical epoch came to an end and when a empire fell or faded, the smarter of their vassals went and found new partners, new patrons. And in this case, they have decided, clearly Mohammed bin Salman has looked at the situation and decided that his interests are much better served via an alliance with the Chinese and also an alliance with the Russians. So, All the U.S. ruling class can do for now is cope and seethe, but we'll see if they can pull anything off in the longer term, in the medium to longer term. There is still, of course, a myriad of contradictions and antagonisms inside Saudi society, which a halfway competent U.S. uh, secret intelligence organization like the CIA, if they've still got anybody halfway good in there, can play on, can try and manipulate, can try and foster tensions within the ruling clique, can try and promote their own guy, can try and coup out Mohammed bin Salman. Who knows? But just because we're moving out of one period doesn't change the character and the class interests which the people like bin Salman and the others in the Saudi ruling clique actually represent. So never mistake a changing of the order for a changing in the relations of production or a changing in which class is actually in power. Now, speaking of the changing of the guard and the shifting of the historical tides, we see a conflict which was in many ways the 
earliest point for many of us in terms of our political development flare up all over again. And I refer, of course, to the situation in Kosovo, which has been in continual crisis for months now, ever since the Kosovan government tried to introduce this new number plating system, which, of course, was just uh, the literal straw that breaks the camel's back because the unstable and fractured nature of that microstate, that uh, NATO, well, US really protectorate, was always going to cause future tensions to erupt again. And so it has been over the last few days with the Serb population in the north of Kosovo staging uh, mass protests and blocking roads, uh, the Kosovan Albanians sending in police forces to break these up or try and break them up, the uh, NATO force called K4 sending in troops to try and intimidate the Serbs into backing down and not succeeding so far, and Vucic, the uh, president of Serbia, uh, hedging his bets as always, I think is the right way to put this. Because, of course, Vucic is a representative of a bourgeoisie which in some ways, uh, mirroring the discussion of the Saudi ruling clique, the Serbian bourgeoisie, being a weak and reactionary class, is and has been hedging its bets in many respects since, of course, the fall of Milosevic, and even before then, I would argue. They have been looking at the different power blocks in the world to try and work out which one it would be most profitable for them to actually align with. So as a consequence of that, they have, of course, historically close ties to the Russians, rhetorically speaking, but in real terms that seems to amount to, of course, a lot of emotional attachment that Serbs and or certain parts of the Serbian population feel for Russia and likewise uh, Russians for Serbs and also the ties of the Orthodox Church. But the ties that have been developing over the last 20 years have been towards Serbia being integrated within the EU and of course if you get integrated into the EU then NATO membership has to follow that and of course it's that which is partly at least restraining the moves of the Serbian ruling class because even though they may want to jump all in with the EU and not really care all that much about joining NATO the population of course tends to remember things like being bombed by NATO for several months in 1999 and the huge amount of cancers that resulted from the NATO usage of depleted uranium munitions that have followed and the destruction of their country, the final annihilation of Yugoslavia and the deindustrialization and the disasters that followed. People tend to remember all those things. So the Serbian ruling class may be all in for joining the EU and as a consequence joining NATO, but they can't because the political consequences of it that would face them in terms of retribution from the population, will be too great. So as a consequence of which, they go as far as they possibly can and are still held back. They can't quite uh, go there, even in the way that like the Macedonians or Montenegrins ruling classes did in terms of rigging referendums and stitching things up to get themselves in. So they're still caught in the middle. And as a consequence, are constantly having to assess and reassess their priorities like at one point Vucic will make noises about moving closer to Russia then he'll issue a lot of criticisms of Russia the next week and he has been along with his predecessors developing a relationship both economic and more so increasingly more so on the military side of things in terms of purchasing of military equipment with the Chinese and so this delicate balancing act, which the Serbian ruling class have been engaging in over the last few years, um, at one point will come unstuck. At one point, a decision will have to be made. And Vucic and others are at the moment doing the most that they can in terms of making noises about mobilizing the police and the army in Serbia to go into northern Kosovo to protect the Serb areas. But at the same time, they're appealing to NATO and the EU to allow uh, Serbian forces to enter Kosovo under the terms of UN Security Council Resolution 1244, where there was a section in there which allowed for the entry of Serbian forces into Kosovo 
um, under certain circumstances, uh, emergency circumstances. And of course, this is what Vucic will argue is the case at the moment. But of course, he's not just piling into northern Kosovo and uh, starting a shooting war with NATO. Um, he's not stupid because Vucic and the Serbian ruling class realize very well that if they get themselves involved in a shooting war with NATO, Russia's not going to help them too much militarily. They can't. Uh, there's, of course, the factor that uh, Serbia is landlocked. There's no way for the Russians to assist them. There's no way for the Russians to fly military assistance in, given that they'd be barred from going through NATO airspace, which surrounds Serbia. So in terms of what the Russians can do, there's not a great deal. And remember, uh, Milosevic gave up in 1999, not because he was necessarily losing the war, though, of course, Yugoslav infrastructure and military buildings were getting hit very hard from the air. But NATO, and more specifically, the Britain and the United States, did not want to go in with a ground invasion. This was something that Blair had talked about, but Clinton was resolutely opposed to that idea, fearing, I think, upon the advice of his military, that there would be a potentially disastrous scenario unfolding if the NATO forces tried to invade Serbia proper. It would inspire a nationwide resistance movement, which even if NATO would win, which they ultimately probably would, it would cause a huge amount of casualties in the NATO ground forces, which neither Blair ultimately or Clinton or any of the other NATO leaders was prepared to accept. And so before Milosevic capitulated, because Yeltsin shafted him, essentially, the NATO commanders, and specifically the British and the Americans, were trying to persuade all kinds of other forces to launch an invasion of Serbia, including the Hungarians, all of whom said no. And so as the bombing campaign against uh, Yugoslavia proceeded, and Milosevic didn't give up, and the uh, especially the Serbian population, rallied round uh, uh, the idea of defense of the nation against the foreign invader. Many, many thousands and thousands of men joined the military. Um, there would have been an enormously difficult fight for NATO had they chosen to engage in a ground invasion of even a limited one of Kosovo. It would have met with uh, mass armed resistance or, and uh, or probably a long-lasting guerrilla war of which there is a long and glorious tradition in the countries of the former Yugoslavia. So they didn't want to do that. So they needed a way to make Milosevic capitulate. And how did they do that? Well, Yeltsin and the Kremlin gang at the time shafted him. Uh, Milosevic, was a, who was, of course, a comprador bourgeois, a man who wanted to have an alliance with the United States and the imperialist powers of the West, but who was denied one because, of course, he wasn't prepared to go quite far enough for them in terms of asset stripping the country and turning the whole place over to uh, American, British and German investors. Um, he was wanting to go at his own pace. So same objective. He just had a different idea of how to get there and wanted to retain more of a share of things for the Serbian domestic bourgeoisie. But that was too much for them. So Milosevic had to go. And Milosevic therefore looked for assistance from Yeltsin in terms of his big concern being the uh, potential for the running out of um, fuel and heating oil for the winter so the nation would freeze and potentially starve and relying on the Russians bringing them uh, food and fuel imports to tide them over. And when Yeltsin made it clear or whoever the hell was uh, puppeting Yeltsin at the time made it clear they weren't going to do that, but that they were going to send forces into Kosovo itself to protect the Serb population. Then at that point, uh, Milosevic uh, realized or stated that the game was up and so capitulated. And of course, then you get that moment where the Russian forces sweep into Pristina Airport and madman General Wesley Clark suddenly orders the British to seize the airport and not allow the Russians onto it. Thankfully, a little guy called James Blunt, who was an army captain in the British Army at the time, uh, refused to follow that order on the instructions, of course, of the British General Michael Jackson. Uh, they refused to follow Wes Clark's orders. And so next time you hear an awful piece of caterwauling from James Blunt, just remember this. The man's allowed to indulge himself. He may have stopped World War Three in 1999. 
where is he now? So the capitulation of Milosevic, um, of course, ushers in uh, the NATO occupation of Kosovo and the turning of it into a protectorate. And of course, Milosevic himself is deposed um, less than a year later in a color revolution run by various groups that are, of course, aligned with shady organizations run by CIA money. And of course, in these later war crimes trial, they struggled to convict him because they, of course, couldn't prove that he'd actually ordered any of the things in either Bosnia or Kosovo that they'd accused him of. And he died in custody in possibly suspicious circumstances. But I wanted to mention at this stage that the reason why I'm going into um, this amount of detail is that the forces in play inside Serbia are, of course, not the descendants of any kind of revolutionary tradition. These are anti-communists. These are the descendants of the Chetnik leader Mihailovic, who was, of course, the bourgeois nationalist Serbian leader who uh, feigned at being an opponent of the Nazis, then later joined the Nazis uh, to fight against uh, Tito and the communist-led partisans. And of course, in Croatia, you get the political heirs of the Ustasha, just as in uh, Kiev right now, you have the political heirs of Bandera. And these are all reactionaries in the Balkans. It's just that the Serbs got the shit end of the stick because they were the ones who were the the driving force in the late period of the uh, federal Yugoslav government. They um, were the bulk of the um, Yugoslav army, Yugoslav national army at the end period of the Yugoslav um, Republic. And so they were the ones who had more of an interest in preserving Yugoslavia, and therefore they were the ones who were targeted for the highest level of demonization. But all of these petty nationalist groupings, be they Croat, Bosniak, Serb, may have all engaged in heinous crimes. They're all reactionary movements led by people who were grew out of the comprador bourgeoisie that emerged in Yugoslavia in the 50s and 60s and then finally carried through a counter-revolution in the late 1980s. And at this stage, I will digress slightly and say that the explosion in petty nationalism which led to the fall of Yugoslavia in uh, the period between 89 to 95 was um, prefigured by the Tito-led government uh, being one of the original uh, revisionist regimes engaging in capitalist restoration, really from the late 1940s onwards, inviting in American advisors, taking uh, large loans from the International Monetary Fund, which is, of course, just a an organization which is a part of the American imperial mechanisms to dominate countries financially and economically speaking. And Yugoslavia, of course, led the way, and then Khrushchev followed them. But to focus on Yugoslavia, of course, Tito is a, in many ways, a complicated figure. He's a, a heroic figure in World War II. He led this uh, genuinely inspiring and heroic revolutionary movement, this uh, vast partisan army, as it was by the end of 1945, that dealt the uh, worst defeat to the Nazis outside of the Eastern Front and the most effective resistance movement anywhere to the Nazis, of course, other than Albania, which, of course, was headed by Tito's nemesis, uh, Enver Hoxha. And so Tito goes from being this heroic figure who beat the Nazis in the, ba in the battlefield, drives them out of Yugoslavia with the assistance, of course, of the Red Army, and then ultimately, though, Tito turns to revisionism. He makes a rightward turn after, well, he said he fell out with Stalin over a decision that Tito blamed Stalin for, which is to stop the Red Army's advance and not go into Greece, because as Tito saw it at the time, Stalin had reached an agreement with the imperialists to give Greece to Britain, or more specifically to Britain and the United States. Now, in reality, it was more complicated than that, given that British troops had already landed in Greece as uh, early as 1944 in order to secure the area and stop it coming under um, the control of a communist movement. 
And so Stalin has a choice at the uh, later period of World War II. Does he roll straight into a war with the Americans and the British, as it was at the time in Greece? Or does he try and reach some kind of arrangement with them? Of course, he has to reach some kind of arrangement with these people who are supposedly his allies, though (laughs) in reality that's rather questionable by the time 1945 rolls around. Tito had the ambitions towards a federation of the entire Balkans, including Greece. And that was one of his ideas. Uh, Probably wouldn't have got very far in terms of uh, anything beyond a federation, but it's an interesting idea and one which, if it had been achieved on a socialist basis, would have been something which would have uh, strengthened all of the constituent components within that uh, federation enormously. But that was not to be. And of course, then, Hoxha was always suspicious of Tito, always insisted that he was a revisionist and an adventurer. And in the end, Hoxha was proven to be correct because after Tito doesn't get his way on Greece, he flips, um, imprisons the genuine communists within his uh, within the partisan movement, within the Yugoslav Communist Party, goes um, towards an alliance with the US and ultimately pursues a revisionist line. Now, Yugoslavia is often praised as being the quote-unquote freest of the uh, Soviet bloc countries, but of course it was also one of the least developed. There were, of course, progressive achievements made in the Yugoslav socialist period, which, of course, the capitalists were all too keen to stamp out in the end, but it was fatally undermined almost from the beginning by a dependence upon the imperialists, by the taking of loans from them, by the indebting, of the Yugoslav federal government to imperialism, and of course by the restoration of capitalism within Yugoslavia, which took place very soon after the uh, move over into the imperialist camp. And I go into this because it's important to realize where the petty nationalisms actually derive from. They derive from a material base. And that material base in Yugoslavia is, of course, the constituent republics, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia... Montenegro, Macedonia, etc., Slovenia, and the fracturing of what used to be uh, central planning and the independent and capitalist developments of these constituent republics all the way through the 60s and the 70s meant that by the time you reach the point of an economic crisis in the 1980s, you have a re-emerged bourgeois elements within each of the constituent republics, within Slovenia, within Croatia, within Bosnia, and within Serbia itself, and of course within the smaller states, Montenegro and Macedonia. And so it is out of this restored capitalist material economic base which the petty nationalist tendencies grow up through the through 60s and the 70s. So by the time you get to the 80s, they are real political forces which are creating real problems on the ground. And the federal state, the Yugoslav federal state, is becoming increasingly unable to control the situation. And part of that stems from its indebtedness to imperialism, which, as we go into the 1980s, the imperialists not only smell blood, but they also need to be taking more aggressive actions themselves because, of course, the capitalist system in the West is not as strong as it seems to be. It goes through a profound crisis in the 60s and the 70s and it needs to get more aggressive in terms of conquering markets. And so as we get into the 1980s and the weakness and pro-capitalist tendencies of the USSR continue to be expressed and get more and more obvious as time goes on, the imperialists smelling blood and needing to expand their markets, expand the resources and labor they can exploit, no longer feel like they need the non-aligned bloc anymore. They certainly don't need a pseudo-socialist or social democratic Yugoslavia anymore. And so from 1984, it becomes a national security priority of the United States to fracture and break up Yugoslavia. This is a document that's a national security directive from the early 1980s from the Reagan administration that uh, Michael Parenti quotes in his book on the Kosovo War. And so what the imperialists do towards the end of the 1980s, they've realized that these petty nationalisms have all grown up in these constituent republics. And so they say, well, we're only going to deal with the democratic forces inside the constituent republics. We're not going to deal with the federal republic itself. 
So they effectively cut off the Federal Republic from international relations. They delegitimize it. And of course, with the Eastern Bloc going down in flames because of its own uh, comprador leadership and the USSR going the same way, the Federal Republic has no friends and nowhere to turn to, and its leadership is very weak and is of a deeply revisionist nature itself. It has not got the strength, it has not got the roots inside the masses, and it has, does not have the allegiance of, the, of even um, revolutionary elements within the proletariat to actually stage any kind of fight back. All the power is flowing in the direction of the bourgeois nationalist tendencies. And so therefore, when the Americans and the Germans and the British drive the final nail into the coffin, they do so by funding all these groups in the free elections, quote-unquote free, of 1989, and basically making sure that the most wild and out-there nationalist tendencies get all the money in terms of the funding that they're, that they're giving to these uh, so-called democratic forces, which, by the way, included a certain Slavoj Zizek, who ran as a Democrat in Slovenia. Interesting to see how he's gone full circle recently. But um, I give that backstory because it's important to realize that when you're discussing the end of Yugoslavia, when you are taught about this, in even up to university level, though in certain history departments the teaching is better, but certainly the popular media portrayal of it, even in books like um, uh, The Balkan Wars by the BBC reporter Misha Glenny, it's portrayed as this ethnic inborn hatred that springs out of uh, the ground and it's just this sort of um, folkloric thing that, um, the nof- that nothing can um, restrain. Only, of course, the, uh, the iron hand of NATO and the UN and the EU. But, of course, you have to analyze this properly and see that these petty nationalisms come back because they are given a material basis upon which to grow. And that comes from the tragically wrong policies of the Tito government, which reintroduced capitalism and did so in a way which fostered the growth of petty nationalisms by um, fracturing the planned economy in such a way as it was divided down into the individual states. And of course, then the individual states pursued pro-capitalist policies that allowed the growth of a bourgeoisie again. Now, I go into this to illustrate a point, which is this, that the Balkan Wars of over 100 years ago, when the territory that was to become Yugoslavia was finally ripped away from the domination of the Ottoman Empire, and then the Balkan Wars that followed the collapse of the socialist systems at the end of the 1980s, risk being repeated again as the US-led empire starts to implode. And all the different bourgeoisies of the Balkan nations, of the former Yugoslavian nations, are waiting and watching. The Serb bourgeoisie are hedging their bets at the moment. They don't want to get into an open shooting war with NATO, which at least some of the NATO alliance would welcome the opportunity to deliver what they think would be an easy defeat to the Serbs, as it would be a way of getting at the Russians. But of course, should the Russians prevail in this war, which eventually they will, should NATO start to fracture. I will repeat what I said on the episode I released on Saturday, which is that when this current order breaks down, you will get all of the territorial disputes and rivalries and conflict flashpoints powered by the contradictions of the weakened and pathetic capitalist ruling classes of these countries, flaring up again. And they will all seek to secure a rearrangement of the borders that were imposed by the US imperial bloc in the period between 1995 and 2000. And Kosovo will form part of that, unfortunately. The only way around this is not for the peoples of the former Yugoslavia to be signed over to one imperial overlord or another, It is, of course, to learn from the heroic period of Yugoslav history, from the heroic period of Tito's history, which is the building of a resistance force which became a movement for communism, which tragically did not work out in the way that it should have done, but which, in that period of resistance to the Nazis, provides a truly heroic example of what can be done and how, apparently, 
insoluble conflicts between different uh, ethnic groups and peoples can be overcome uh, through class solidarity and through the building of genuine class consciousness, proletarian solidarity and internationalism and all those communist values that the resistance movements in World War II in both Yugoslavia and Albania did build. So we must always bear that in mind and always make that point forcefully. But the likely outcome of this latest flare-up is probably going to be some form of compromise or another that will tide things over for another few months until there's another flare-up down the road because everybody involved in this can see that we are in a period of change. The Kosovan Albanian petty nationalists are getting nervous that if NATO goes down to defeat and starts fracturing, if the EU starts fracturing, then their supposed independence won't last too much longer either. And meanwhile, the uh, Serb nationalist bourgeois are waiting to see if they can secure a rearrangement of their borders in their own favour as well. None of this is in the interests of the working class of any of these countries. And it is the job of communists everywhere to point that out forcefully and to also equally forcefully oppose any attempt by the US imperialists or the British imperialists to try and reassert their control over the countries in the Balkan region. Uh, that is something which they have had far too long to do. And it is something which they have only wrought disaster and catastrophe by doing. So... This is something which will not go away, and it will not be solved by any capitalist politician anytime soon. Now, speaking of capitalist politicians, there's no more a contemptible example of one at the moment than the man known as Sir Keir Starmer. He is in the news again uh, as part of his ongoing piece of virtue signalling that he's been doing for the ruling class since, well, around about 2020 and probably a bit earlier than that. He's been spending his entire career both as a lawyer inside the Crown Prosecution Service, which for the benefit of American and Canadian and other listeners from outside of Britain, that is the state prosecutorial authority of which he was the head for a while. He spent his entire career, and indeed his only real discernible talent is to um, guess or find out the whims and the wishes of those immediately above him in the chain of command and deliver upon them. And that was, of course, what he was planning to do before 2015, when things got upset in his climb to become Labour leader, as he always wanted to be, by Corbyn coming along. Then, of course, he played his role in the destruction of the Corbyn leadership, which, of course, pretty comprehensively destroyed itself. And now he's been engaging in this long period of virtue signaling to the ruling class. And, of course, he's now getting the compliments he was really after, which is Tory MPs, including uh, Charles Walker and others making comments in press interviews and saying, well, we're really not that bothered by a Keir Starmer government because they know very well that it's not going to do anything to threaten the fundamental interests of the British capitalist class. And so he's at it again over the course of the weekend, promising to get tough with militant unions. And uh, his loathsome homunculus Wesley Streeting, who uh, runs the Shadow Ministry of Health, who will be health secretary if they win power in an election, which may come at any point in the next year or so. And he, of course, that is streeting, is committed to continuing the policy of the Blair Brown government, which is uh, building up the private healthcare sector at public expense. And, of course, streeting is presenting this as a great solution to the NHS waiting list problem, which was created by cutbacks in the public sector and to frontline services in particular, the draining of staff and resources from the NHS. And Streeting's big solution is the same as Brown and Blair's and David Cameron's actually, which is use public money to build up the private sector. And that is the classic approach uh, which was outlined long ago by a former Tory minister by the name of Oliver Letwin back in the time of the Thatcher administration. He wrote a book in the late 1980s, uh, outlining how you privatise a public service that the public doesn't want to see privatised. First, you starve it of resources, then you whip up public anger against it, then you declare that the only solution is to privatise it. Now, because you, of course, you can't really get away with that with the National Health Service, so, of course, you build up public frustration by cutting its resources, then you present the private sector as a solution, but you make sure you don't introduce too many health charges, at least not immediately, because that would set off too much opposition. But it's a slow process they have to engage with in regard to the NHS in terms of selling it off, because 
this was one of the few actual areas where a more socialist approach was used in the in its foundation and in that the entire network of hospitals across the country was nationalized along with the staffing as well so the building up of the private sector in terms of healthcare in this country has been a more long-winded process because the public is very attached to the health service even though that drives um, right-wing cretins in this country absolutely crazy and of course they're always eager to point out about how the NHS is failing here there or everywhere and there are failures that usually stem from over bureaucratization and of course a starving of uh, resources to certain frontline positions was of course it still contains a bloated bureaucracy which is completely useless and can be easily demonized as well so wesley streeting wants to privatize the nhs but wants to do it on the quiet or more specifically to do it behind the veil of a crisis and keir starmer wants to get tough with the militant unions but of course even the Financial Times in Britain is saying that uh, getting tough right now by the Tories with the unions would be the wrong approach because it would generate too much opposition and would create too many problems. So better to end the nurses' strike on favourable terms in terms of a negotiated settlement uh, rather than avoid a long-running damaging, politically damaging, that is, confrontation. Obama, of course, is playing his role and saying, oh, we couldn't possibly afford a uh, settlement that the nurses are asking for. And so we'll probably go with whatever it is that Sunak ultimately pushes through. And Sunak will ultimately strike a bargain with the leaders of the nurses' unions. These are not exactly militants, even though they do have an increasingly angry membership to deal with. And of course, all of these union leaders will tell you to vote for Keir Starmer when the election comes around. So the big left-wing heroes at the moment, like Mick Lynch and Dave Ward and Sharon Graham will all ultimately tell you to vote for the Labour Party because they all remain affiliated to it. There's not been enough of a groundswell of opinion developed or a movement to disaffiliate developed within these unions as of yet, though, even though there are movements being built that are pushing for that. And we, that is those of us outside of the Labour Party, looked to be faced with the same old problem, which is that the Trade union leadership, with some very honourable exceptions, such as Scargill and Bob Crow of the RMT, were incorporated into the state structure of the British bourgeois state over 100 years ago and have remained there ever since. Even Margaret Thatcher, during her war on trade unionism, insisted at all times, and she was actually telling the truth about this, that it wasn't a war on moderate and responsible trade unionism, as she put it. It was a war on the militants, and I've gone into this before in previous episodes dealing with the miners' strike. It was a war on, as Gramsci put it, the organic intellectuals of the working class. That's what they wanted to stamp out. The rank-and-file leadership, the politically conscious workers, many, many hundreds of thousands of them across every industry in Britain, that's what they wanted to stamp out. It wasn't the moderate trade union leader. And if you're wondering what a moderate trade union leader is, a moderate union leader is a guy who, when... The boss comes in and says, I want to fire 500 people. Then the moderate union leader says, oh, that's terrible. How about 300? The boss says, okay, okay, okay. We've compromised, 450. And the moderate union leader goes back to the workers and says, brothers, I've saved 50 jobs. And that is the role of the moderate trade union leader in Britain and indeed the US and everywhere else in the world as well. And in the British case, you can see who the moderates are and who the responsible trade union leaders are. They're the ones in ermine. They're the ones who stack the benches on the House of Lords. They're the ones who get made Lord and Baron and Earl and God knows what else as a reward for a lifetime of faithful service to the British state. You don't get these gongs, these titles, these ermine robes unless of course you provided a service to the british capitalist state and all those tuc general secretaries dame francis o'grady baron barber baron monks and various others have all provided very valuable services to the british capitalist state over the years in terms of keeping the trade union movement under control crushing the militant aspects right out of it and making sure it remains tied to the British state. And of course, part of being tied to the British state is being tied to the Labour Party. And no trade union leader at the moment, even the better ones, are going to walk away from that because that is a 
fundamental challenge to British capitalism. If you cut off the Labour Party from trade union money, if you remove its legitimacy in terms of being able to present itself as a party of working people or a party for the majority or whatever vague and uh, woolly formulation Keir Starmer wants to use this week, if you remove its link to the trade union movement, if not completely, then at least substantially, unions like us, Dor, will, will remain affiliated until every single shop worker in Britain is laid off and replaced with a robot and the Usdor leadership will still be declaring, we must stay the course, brothers. That's another story. But if you remove that, if you cut the Labour out of the Labour Party, it will die incredibly quickly because uh, there is very little ground for in this country for a version of the American Democrats. There's, of course, space for liberal parties, but without that organisational and, of course, monetary muscle that the union movement brings. The Labour Party is nothing. And, of course, if you are a union leader who pulls that cord, who pulls on that thread, who undoes this, you are wandering into or walking into a confrontation with the ruling class that is fundamental. Because the ruling class needs the Labour Party. They need the Labour Party to harness dissent. They need the Labour Party to be able to come in as an apparent alternative to the Conservatives, which they need that right now, which is why Keir Starmer's desperate to do all his virtue signalling and get the ruling class du uh, duly assuaged in terms of their fear of him doing anything that could challenge them whatsoever. And they need that fake alternative. And the union leaders need it as well. They're incorporated into it. They're fundamentally part of it. No union bureaucracy is going to, on its own volition, go into a confrontation with the British state, even if it's one that certain right-wing elements in British bourgeois society would, on the surface of it, welcome. Pay no attention to that. The British ruling class needs a viable Labour Party in order to keep its political system with a shred of credibility. And a viable Labour Party needs the backing of the trade union movement or the apparent backing of it or the acquiescence of the trade union leaders. And the trade union leaders are part of a tradition that's been incorporated inside the British state for over 100 years. That kind of thing is not broken overnight. It would take a huge groundswell of opinion amongst the working class of Britain to actually break those links. It can be done, though. It can be done. Because if you move enough workers and if you threaten the trade union leadership with either pull out of the Labour Party or you lose office, and not only do you lose office, but all the people associated with you lose office as well, then if you put that kind of choice in front of them, then they'll have to jump. But at the moment, that isn't happening. So we will see at the next election, Keir Starmer going into it saying, I will stop these militant unions and the union leaders dutifully lining up and saying, well, it's better than the Tories. Because apparently these guys are sadomasochists who like to pay to get kicked in the balls. So there you go. Well, that brings us to the end of this update today. I will be back again with another one of these tomorrow. Where I'll be focusing back again on the developments from Ukraine and any other stories that come along. So until then, thank you for listening. And I will leave you, as is customary, with some music. Stop.